What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Bros, Bibles, and Beer podcast. This is episode 140, where Zach, Scott, and I, Andy, sit down with Matthew J. Cortman to talk about his brand new book, Saying No to God, A Radical Approach to Reading the Bible Faithfully. Where's Jeff, you might ask? We have no idea. He traded places with Scott, and he's MIA this week. So sit down, buckle up, and hang on, because we're going for a theological roller coaster ride in this week on Bros, Bibles, and Beer. No, and with that, um, Matthew J. Corpman is um, ready for bed. <laughs> in case, man, in case this somehow makes it in, we've been struggling with technical issues, but thanks for joining us, Matthew. Really appreciate it. Staying up late on the East Coast for us. I would stay up for you guys a long time. <laughs> Happy to be on the show. Well, we could prove that tonight. That's a different issue. Yeah. So you mentioned you come off of teaching a class and then you jump on with us. What what's that class? What were you teaching? I was I was teaching um, an independent course over Zoom on the historical Jesus. It was called Early Jesus Traditions. That was the last class of a ten week journey. Oh, you missed an opportunity to call that Oh Jesus. I tried to put OG and Jesus together. Nice. <laughs> it didn't work. <laughs> oh man. Jokes. Right? Yeah, with myself. Man, so the best one. Yeah. <laughs> We've been guilty of that before. But uh Matthew, you what what uh, version of God were you born into? we can start there oh what version of god was i born into that's a loaded question um so there's so many aspects to it right there's no necessarily one way so when i was born into um the world i was born where were you born uh, where was i born right that's a good way to start this out so i was born in um texas and I was born into a Seventh-day Adventist family. I'm still Seventh-day Adventist. Um, but so with that, my mom was very much Jesus-centric. So my mom was all about relationship with Jesus, spiritual connection, feeling God's presence, Holy Spirit. That was my mom's spirituality. And that is very much what I was born and raised into. On the other hand, formally... Uh, the televangelists that I was exposed to and would watch and be around were very much leaning towards a sort of fundamentalism that in some weird way was at odds with the kind of spirituality that my mom uh, so centralized. So growing up, I was getting a very firm foundation in an independent, non-doctrinal understanding of God, and at the same time getting a very formal education in a very doctrinal-centric, inerrancy-leaning 
kind of uh, evangelical view of God. So were you watching a bunch of so the televangelists? Those weren't Seventh-day Adventists. I don't know if I've ever heard of a Seventh-day tele... They were. Oh, they were. Okay. They do exist. Yes, there are a lot of them. Okay. <laughs> Very interesting. Some names, some names like the Kenneth Cox, uh, Doug Batchelor, Mark Finley. I, would not, I wouldn't put Mark Finley in the category I was describing. But like uh, Doug Batchelor is a big name televangelist who's been on many, many networks and televisions for decades. Uh, probably a little bit, I think, less now than he used to be. But, um, you know, he... You, you could catch him on, you know, just like any televangelist on the right morning, you know, on the right channel six, seven, whatever it was in your area. Um, there'd be there'd be his time slot program, especially back in the in the 1990s and early 2000s. Amazing facts. Yeah. <laughs> was he fire and brimstone slash send a, send me some money? Was that his go to? No, 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 actually. Um, so Seventh-day Adventism, one, doesn't believe in hell. Da, 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 da. So no fire and brimstone. Uh, there's a unless, it, unless the fire and eternal hell. Maybe the fire and brimstone just eliminates them. <laughs> that, that's true. Conditional, uh, conditional annihilationism. I'm sure we'll get there. Keep going. On the other hand, uh, also... Seventh-day Adventists and televangelists are not prosperity gospel. There's no, there's no, please give us your money, except uh, we'd like to send you uh, literature. So do you, would you like this book? Would you like that? Here, give any donation. We'll, we'll send this to you. So that's about the extent of it. So really, those programs, especially like Amazing Facts, are super just purely like just educational, doctrinally oriented. So when I would watch something, you'd, it'd be like a series just like one after the other, as if it was going through a narrative, and it would just take you in a in a pattern day after day or week after week to get the audience to like their their prophecy sort of endpoint. Um, and and a lot of like Doug Batchelor's work uh, in his televangelism was very much like take the Book of Revelation and then like walk through it and like lead to certain uh, doctrinal positions by doing that. And that was like a very classical kind of Adventist approach in general. A lot of Adventist ministers would go around uh, throughout the, the like probably the last 50 plus years going ahead and like doing prophecy seminars. And they do like a big event and try to bring people in from the street. So really what Doug Batcher and others like him were doing on televangelism was just very much that kind of variety, but just doing it on TV. But it, it was a lot healthier than your televangelists that you find, it, it, even if it still was very much a sort of uh, Adventist version of fundamentalism going in a certain direction. These guys were like the planet Earth documentary series of televangelism. <laughs> They're just... I have never heard that analogy, and I probably never will. No, you won't. Before. There's all original material here, Matthew. There's no covers. It's what we do. <laughs> That's why I'm here. That's awesome. So you... You're on the East Coast now. Where where are you living? I'm living in I'm just living in New Haven County in Connecticut. So I, I just graduated from uh, Yale University in in May, where I finished a master's degree at the Divinity School. So uh, because of COVID, I'm, I'm stuck out here currently still uh, beyond when I expected I would be. I thought I'd be back in California by now, uh, but I'm I'm out here and. Um, uh, thankfully safe from the crazy winds that were earlier today as uh, 
uh, hurricane or now tropical storm Isaias was making its way through. Oh yeah, that's right. You guys have a have a hurricane going on over there. Yeah, it became a tropical storm, but like the wind gusts were pretty pretty crazy as it made its way up the east coast. Oh well, that sucks. Well, I'm glad you're okay. And yeah, yeah, I, I I'm glad. But oh my goodness, uh, the the outside everything torn up, trash cans everywhere, crazy stuff. Man, that's a, we got earthquakes over here. We actually had a couple recently, but just little ones. Uh, we don't. Well, you know, you grew up in California, or you were born in Texas, I'm but grew up in California. Born in Texas, lived a while in Florida, made my home in California. It's got my soul. San Diego, Riverside. I love, I love me Cali. Yeah, it's a great place. Before we uh, we dive into some of the the deep stuff we have you here for, I have some personal experience with Seventh Day Adventism. And so my dad's parents were Seventh-day Adventists. And all I know, I, I, I have very limited understanding, and it, a, a lot of it was negative because he, as he grew up, he just, you know, as kids do, you reject your parents sometimes. I, it doesn't sound like you are. I, I'm not sure my dad had a healthy version of Seventh-day Adventism, but you can correct me if I'm wrong or if... So we invited my grandpa. My grandma was uh, deceased, or had, she had passed away when my wife and I got married. But we invited him to the wedding, and he didn't come because it was on a Saturday. And he sent us a card, and the only thing it said was, "Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy." And so when he said that, we knew he wasn't coming to our wedding. And we're not offended or anything, but he was very strict. I remember. He stopped to get gas on a Saturday when we were on an excursion when I was a kid, and you could tell it was tearing him apart, the fact that he had to stop and get gas. Is that any... It doesn't sound like you grew up around that strict legalism, but that's that's basically my contact with Seventh-day Adventism. And for the record, as we get into your book, you have uh, Ellen White quotes, and every almost every quote, I'm like, that's a great quote. I have never seen this side of her, but I'll stop rambling. Any comments you have? No, that's wonderful. Uh, no, <laughs> it's I'm really I'm really happy that you brought up the Ellen White quotes because um, before answering the question about healthy Adventism, uh, the thing is is that when it comes to different religious figures, but in particular like Ellen White, there becomes she wrote so much. And she changed so much over so many years and had so many views on so many things. The problem comes when a certain group <coughs> conservatives uh, start to enforce a specific image of her in which they tailor select quotations that they want, that they particularly wish to focus. They want to highlight their own major themes in her work. And then that's what you get taught and heard all the time. And then you actually start to look at her works, especially now because they're all online. There's like, you can go, there's a website that has her entire database of published, unpublished works. You can literally look for any topic and see whatever she wrote throughout her life on it. And what you start to realize is, wow, uh, almost nobody really knows the real Ellen White. And I mean that like truly, she is a dynamic figure with lots of different views. Yes, she said the crazy things that you've heard before. And yes, she said a whole bunch of amazing stuff you never heard before. So it, what I really want to do in this book, you know, is similar to like 
what I'm doing by taking out all these unique scriptures and ideas that were so have been so overlooked. In the same way, I wanted to take a lot of different passages of Ellen White uh, as commentary. You know, nothing. If you notice, like in the book, I'm treating Ellen White very much in the same way as I would treat any historical leader of a Christian church, whether that's Martin Luther, John Calvin, Karl Barth, otherwise. I'm adding her theological voice into the mix because it's part of my Adventist heritage. And, you know, what I found so astounding is there's so much that she's had to say that is progressive, that goes in a direction very different from how others take it. Now, to that degree, right? You ask, what's a healthy Adventism? Well, you know, here's the thing. In most denominations, uh, typically, you always have a mixed bag. You have fundamentalists who are going to lean towards the crazy side, and you got progressives who are going to lean much more towards like innovative ideas and trying to reach for the stars. And those perspectives will always clash, typically. And so in Adventism, what you find is that you've got... Uh, the denomination kind of has moved and shifted in various waves ever since its founding. And so, like, if you were to see Adventism in the, like, 1880s, 1890s, like, you would see a very different dynamic movement with super emphasis on social justice and trying to make inroads. Like, we were huge in our early founding as a denomination in regards to the Civil War and 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 saying that a Christian who supported slavery had to be kicked out of the denomination because there's no way one can can you know waffle on these issues and all like it, what's amazing there's actually a quote by ellen white that comes so close to james cone like before james cone ever went ahead and said god is black like there's a quote by ellen white where she comes so close to like making the same point way back when she was writing again like these these elements that are not unique to her but unique like just in the sense of the kinds of unique dynamic people adventism was attracting in its early days. But then the problem is you had fundamentalism rising in the early 1900s, and Adventism was kind of caught in this weird crossroads between, on the one hand, you've got these uh, super liberals kind of formulating in, in the same time as the fundamentalists, and they're saying, well, the Bible is just human words, and it's not that authoritative, we are. And then you got fundamentalists, like the Bible's super authoritative, and we aren't. And you got Adventists who historically the position was the Bible is authoritative, but it's not inerrant. So Adventists were like smack dab in the middle, hmm. fundamentalists and, and liberals in this very unique position, which is much closer, I think, in a sense to sort of the position that uh, more and more is growing popular with some progressives now. And that is that Adventists had to at this time kind of figure out, well, who are, who are our friends? Who do we align with? Who do we make, uh, you know, strengths with? Because the truth is they were a, a relatively new denomination struggling to make a name, struggling to maintain a, an acceptable form of Christianity that would get open doors to people and people would actually listen to them. And in one sense, basically, they made the decision, oh, well, the fundamentalists are more, uh, uh, they, they like the authority of the Bible like we do. Yeah, we disagree with them with inerrancy, but they seem like, in that sense, they're closer to us than the Liberal Party. Mm -hmm. That's such a... They, yeah. No, no, no. Sorry to interrupt you. I, I, that's a, it's an impressive answer. I think Zach was just wondering if you got gas on Saturdays. <laughs> <laughs> this is what I mean. Like, what I mean you, probably, you know, way too 
Connor. No, it's okay. Now, what you have is a split denomination in a sense where you have liberals, a lot of them in California and in the West Coast, where it's like, yeah, you grow up as an Adventist, you, you go, you get your necessities if you have to on the Sabbath. That's not a terrible thing. You go celebrate and eat, you know, food on the Sabbath, you know, at, because you understand that you're 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 celebrating the purpose of the Sabbath, you're happy about it. On the other hand, you're going to find conservatives, lots of them, especially on the East Coast, who are going to be extremely fundamentalist-leaning and be like yeah. the experience that you had, where they are all about anti-Catholic and they're all about talking about, uh, you know, don't don't you dare do any kind of work or, or, or step into a store on the Sabbath. Don't, don't even think about eating. I won't go to... Like, a lot of... And with, no Adventist with an issue with going to Sabbath. Yeah, grew up with which like going to a wedding on the Sabbath. But that's so yours was yours was a little bit more like the progressive leaning side of Seventh Day Adventists. Yes, except in the sense that, which is so funny, my mom's ethic and and my the, the people I'm around right that's all the progressive. But then like at the same time, I'm growing up listening to the televangelists and and pastors who are on the other side of the spectrum. Mm. So your mom was so progressive, your mom was so progressive that she allowed you to listen to the conservatives because you had to get all those ideas in you, you know, that. Yes. And, and at the same time though, it's like part of it is, is Adventist subculture. Like even if the, there, it's not like a, it's not like a conscious divide. Even right. It's a doctrinal divide. It's still like all those other people, all those other perspectives are still Adventists. They're still under the tent. Like face. So like there's so much of it where it's like you, you're still always watching and involved just because it's like part of the tent that you're all under. Um, but I think like it was a lot different. I think when I was growing up, I think in some respects now it's, it's grown much more divided between the camps because Adventism has had a lot more um, issues in, since the 2010s onward with women's ordination. And that has caused like a lot more of the progressive party to take a strong stance against the conservatives and okay. against women's ordination and the conservatives to take a stronger stance against the others in, in ways that I think make people more now conscious within Adventism of what side they're standing on. Um, and make the tent a little bit more divisive to a certain degree. Okay. So you mentioned the book. Uh, let's just give that a um, give that a mention. Saying no to God, <laughs> a radical approach to reading the Bible faithfully. Give me the elevator pitch to this book. Okay, the elevator pitch. Um, the elevator pitch is essentially that the traditional way of understanding religion is that if God tells you something, that's, that's it. That's the authority. God tells me to walk right, I walk right. End of story. That's where the ball drops. The Bible's actual message, that that is totally wrong. That, in fact, that is the recipe for disaster, and that that is not the way God or specifically in the Hebrew Bible, Yahweh, or Jesus in the New Testament. That is not the way that God works in Scripture. Uh, God actually wants people at the highest act of faith to push back at times against what he says. Ooh, ah, oh, you, you ruined my question by saying at times at the very end. <laughs> because up until that point, I was going to ask you if that was... Uh, if the answer was always, is that always the 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 way that um, 
that God wants us to interact with him. But you're at. This will be the difference between, I guess, to a certain degree, this will be the difference between Peter Rowland's way of writing in like the fidelity of betrayal and my way of writing, in the sense that like Peter Rowland's, when he talks about uh, in the fidelity of betrayal, he talks about like a Christianity that is always uh, ready to betray, always will betray whatever form it's in. It's almost like um, it's almost like deconstruction as a um, a mode of being, as if it's like a calling. Um, in this respect, uh, and I'm not sure that necessarily that Rollins even necessarily was trying to aim for that per se. He could have. But uh, the way he writes leads to that. The way that I'm doing this is a little bit more specific in the sense that there is certain conditions that happen that allow for and prompt uh, you to reject something God is saying. Now, are, are you making a, a distinction between... Um, in uh, singular events, um, and between something like um, uh, Abraham pleading with God for the people of Sodom, saying, you know, if they're 50, if they're 40, 10, you know, all the way down, something like that, and the law that God gives and obedience to that, where there's, um, because they're uh, questioning of God in the cases of obedience to the law. So I, 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 it seems like those would be two separate things. I'm not sure if you make that distinction uh, in, in the book. So I think, so I wouldn't make the distinction per se, because in essence, where, so in the book, what I am examining essentially is the issue of God's character, and when you look at either the stories uh, that involve individual events and what's happening, or the laws in the Hebrew Bible or throughout Scripture, they all stem, in essence, from a question of God's character, because the laws are reflecting something in regards to God's character. So, for example, when Jesus is describing or dealing with the Sabbath, and he's trying to defend why um, they're doing certain things that don't meet the current understanding of how to keep the Sabbath. Jesus does not decide to make an argument about how the Pharisees and Sadducees are interpreting the Sabbath. Instead, he goes right for the jugular, and he goes to the issue of the Sabbath law itself, and he makes a general argument and basically says, look, the intention of the Sabbath was to bless man. It was made for his benefit. So, if humankind is supposed to be blessed by the Sabbath, but then suddenly keeping the Sabbath becomes a curse, the opposite of the intention, well, then the law itself is unjust. At well, that but, point, but why would the why would the law itself? Oh, at at that at that at that point, point when it's at, no longer a blessing and it becomes a curse, despite that God wanted it to be a blessing. At that point, God wants you to not keep the Sabbath. Because that Sabbath has now worked against God's intention. Ooh. Do away with the law of the Sabbath. It would just be, for example, if your uh, if your uh, donkey falls into the ditch, you don't leave it there on the Sabbath. You you take it out. You get it out of the ditch. But that right. doesn't that doesn't dissolve the idea of the Sabbath and. And it's of course not. No, it wouldn't dissolve right. the concept of the Sabbath, but it would right. dissolve. So 
in other words, Jesus's point wasn't about a specific implication of like what my disciples did picking grain on the Sabbath, which is what he was getting criticized on. His point was, um, and, and perhaps actually I can say it better, which is probably a rare thing in life to say, I think Jack Derrida, the philosopher who confuses everyone, could probably say it better. But he wrote an article on law and justice. And the way he wrote this, I think, sums up Jesus's approach really well foundationally. And that is that justice, Derrida argued, is undeconstructible. Everyone remembers Derrida as the guy who talks about deconstruction, deconstruction. But Derrida held that there were certain things that were undeconstructible. They could never be deconstructed because they don't exist. If it doesn't exist, you can't deconstruct it which is one reason why John Caputo wonders, is God undeconstructible? So anyway, <laughs> but so you take Derrida's point and it's like, he says, look, justice is undeconstructible. It never happens. It's a goal. It's never a achieved state. So justice is this thing that doesn't exist, but is always calling on people, calling on them to enact justice, despite the fact that it's never there. So laws, Derrida argues, are the response that people give to that call for justice. But you can never call the laws justice. The laws can never be justice so that they are always under the call of justice. The laws have to always be re-looked at, re-evaluated, reassessed, because that law that tries to give justice at one point may eventually be unjust at a future point when circumstances change. So the call for justice remains the same, but the individual laws that are enacted do not. And they have to be constantly understood as deconstructible underneath the call of justice. So in that respect, then, when you look at Jesus' words on the Sabbath, if you look at it through that lens, which they seem pretty darn similar, suddenly you can recognize the principles that undergirded why the Sabbath is given are the call. They stay the same. The individual idea of giving the Sabbath on the seventh day in this specific way for this specific purpose and time, that is the law, and it's always under the call of God's intention, so that Jesus can say that the issue here is, is being miscalculated by the Pharisees. You have your eye on trying to keep the law without keeping your eye on what he would call the bigger issues, the more important, the, the call that makes that law important in any sense at all. So in that sense, I would argue that, again, the call has to do with God's character, God's plan, his design. So in that sense, even if you're talking about laws specifically in the Bible, or you're talking about stories in the Bible in which characters are dealing with an event, they all are stemming from the issue of how one understands God's character and sees his words, whether in legal form or in conversation, as a reflection of that character. Right. So, so would that have implications for a mandate to keep it on the seventh day, the Sabbath? Yes, I think what it shows is that it's a conditional issue in regards to the benefit of human beings. Now, there are always going to be interesting questions there to, to have and to ask regarding, you know, when do you, where do you draw a line? When can you say, you know, one or the other? I think the best line you could draw is the one Jesus drew, which is that if this thing that is supposed to bless begins to curse, then it is a, 
it is the contrary of God's design, and that's when you know it can't keep going. And this is a similar argument we make in regards to uh, divorce. You know, when we when we when you're a pastor and you're faced with uh, an abused housewife, uh, and they're like, "Yes, but God went ahead and said that He wants marriages to stay together, and He wants." And you hear all that. What does a pastor tell her? He says, "Do you really think that God's in favor of the toxicity here?" You think God is wanting the 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 uh, the abusive imagery that your children are having? Do you think God is blessed by a marriage that's so dysfunctional? No. The the average pastor says no. That the problems caused by your dysfunctional marriage are far worse than anything to do with trying to keep divorce laws or trying to keep a marriage in 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 union. So the the logic we already do this logic in essence with marriage. Um, because it just it you know it's hard for anyone to fathom that like oh yes you're honoring God more by staying in the toxic marriage and suffering than if yeah. you get out and have a healthy this, life. This is Jesus saying the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you actually you you just demonstrate the marriage thing. You demonstrate um, you you kind of break that down. The difference between what Matthew does with um, don't get divorced versus the other gospels, how Matthew, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, changes, uh, what the other gospels say, because I don't remember exactly your wordage, but he was uncomfortable maybe with the strictness of the other gospels where, where there's no divorce under any circumstances, accor- yeah. according to Jesus. Yeah. In Mark and Luke, you get the divorce command pretty pretty straightforward under no conditions should you ever uh can you you ever uh divorce um or 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 certainly divorce and and remarry and in matthew you're given this exception in regards to unless there's adultery um what is i I think always an interesting thing i didn't include that in the book but you know just as for fun since you know it's a podcast you can throw in extras um we can have fun here I mean, what's more fun than adultery? Let's continue. (laughs) (laughs) In the Sermon on the Mount, um, I I remember I raised this issue in a class at Yale, and and, and I don't think people knew what to deal with it when I mentioned it. It was just like, uh, oh, that's an interesting thing. (laughs) So what's interesting in the Gospel of Matthew isn't just that, that Matthew changes that. It's that he puts this in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, and in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus actually says that uh, he redefines adultery. And people always forget this. When they quote the divorce law, they just quote it as if like they're working with the normal form of adultery. But then they forget it's in the Sermon on the Mount. And what did Jesus define adultery as? He said, uh, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. And so what's funny is that I, you know, and I, who knows whether Matthew intended this when he put this together, maybe not, but you know, it's so hard to ever know what an ancient author might think in the back of their head. Yeah. Yeah. Could you could deconstructively read this, that if adultery is acceptable means for divorce and Jesus just defined divorce as being a thought action that so many men at that time would have been guilty of. Well, and maybe then, yeah, and maybe we need to separate like the meaning from from that specific context. Like, maybe the literalism in that isn't exactly what we should tie these two things together. Because 
It, no, of course not. It doesn't seem to. In, it is funny. It doesn't seem to pass like the sniff test, right? We, yeah, yeah. In the logic of the passage, yeah. adultery is now actually opened as a larger category than would have been traditionally understood. Right, right. Required a specific act. So, in one sense, if you wanted to read that deconstructively, it's actually opened up floodgates larger, specifically for women to make claims or to be able to hold their standards to a degree. And I say this only because so many people will cite the divorce laws uh, that Jesus gave and try, especially in Matthew, and try to argue in a sense that, you know, they'll they'll try to argue, well, these were for the benefit of women in order to essentially, um, you know, because they would be thrown out, you know, and dismissed from relationships for all sorts of reasons. And in fact, you can see in the Talmud, that kind of ideology uh, in several statements. Uh, in this case, it's just interesting that again, like people don't people don't read the Bible so closely as to notice when definitions change. And I think like it's important that when we're reading Scripture, whether we want to read it that way or not, we're already editing it in our minds. You know, even correct. If you say, well, that doesn't fit the sniff test, right? Well, why doesn't it? Jesus already just redefined the word adultery, and then he gives a law that references adultery. Well, a, well a because totally I, I, reading, I think you just take I, that one after the other in the context I think of the passage. For, yeah, I think for one, it's because be, it, he seems to be preaching against divorce, and and if adultery is now opened up so broadly that virtually. Every man or every marriage is now subject to a has has a good reason to get divorced sure. because every everyone lusts. That would that would seem to speak for yourself, Scott. Thank you. Zach's puritan Zach's puritanical mindset has never once strayed. I don't waver. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that's brilliant though. But like, here's the interesting thing, right? You're absolutely right. The context, even though you can deconstruct it that way, the context seems to be that Jesus doesn't want divorce, right? And what is so interesting is, of course, you read more. And when Jesus talks at another time with the Sadducees, and they, this is such an interesting passage, when they come to him and they say, well, we know a story about uh, a woman who had seven husbands, Seven brothers who went ahead and, and, and married her each time. Who, who, um, who is it that's going to be her husband in the, um, in the next life, in the resurrection? Now, what's so fascinating about that story is that they're actually citing the book of Tobit. So if you're not Catholic or Eastern Orthodox, you don't know what that book is. But if you are Eastern or Eastern Orthodox or Catholic, it's in your Bible. In fact, statistically, since most Christians around the world are in those two groups— Two-thirds of Christians worldwide will know the book of Tobit as part of their sacred scripture. But this story, which was, it's also found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, where it was scripture for the Essene Jews over there. Uh, This story is cited by the Sadducees, and it represents the only time that the Sadducees start to cite something outside of their recognized canon of the Torah. And Jesus, anytime he talks to the Sadducees, always deals, strictly speaking, with just the stories of the Torah, because he respects that they aren't going to listen to other things. But this time, they've brought out Tobit. And they even mm. 
wrong. They, they, they start to riff on it, which shows kind of, in a sense, how much they aren't paying attention to it. Like, yeah, there's classic Sadducee move. Classic. <laughs> and what happens here is that Jesus goes ahead and turns it on them. And he says, look, it basically says, you don't understand what you're reading. You didn't pay attention to it. And then he says a statement that always is so fascinating. People quote this all the time, and, they, and because they don't recognize the context, they don't put things two and two together. Jesus goes ahead and says, you know, in the new, in the new world, in heaven, uh, you know, they're not going to be given in marriage and taken in marriage uh, like they usually are. What's so fascinating here is that people will take that passage and then they try to build a theology on it. But in the book of Tobit, right? When he said, you don't understand what you're talking about. In the book of Tobit, uh, it actually, the whole book is built on this fascinating premise of soulmate theology. It's one of the only examples of this in, in, in a Bible collection in which you actually have an angel reveal that God destines a specific person to be the wife of another person or to be the husband of another person. Which thousands of years later came out in its second edition as I Kiss Dating Goodbye by Josh Harris. Correct. <laughs> and so what's fascinating here in the story is that what happens is basically um, the angel tells him, look, the other six uh, who died, they, they were never part of this like you are the one tobit who's going to marry this girl like this is going to work you will there's a whole long spiel we don't have to go into but the mm. point is take that and now go over to when jesus is talking to the sadducees in response to that story and now how does that change how you hear him talk about the new heaven because when he talks about marriage he uses possessive words in regards to a father giving a daughter okay the wife is moved in the marriage the wife is given but if you're reading it through tobit all of a sudden now oh wait a minute of course there won't be remarriage because according to tobit there's no need for it god already has the pairing so whoever the answer to the story you don't understand is hello the story told you it's going to be the one god chose now why do i mention that because then that plays also an important role into divorce. Because, right, when you think about the story of Hosea and Gomer, right, what is the premise there in that story? Hosea is told to go after Gomer. Hosea is told, you should go after her. You should get her because right, I ordained her with you. I went ahead and led you to this. Don't give up. Go back. And so what's interesting about this theology, when you put it together in regards to divorce, what did Jesus say? He said, what God has put together, do not break apart. So do you think that there, that people that have experienced divorce, um, let's just say two or three times, there's a, th their soulmate is the one they're with in the afterlife, as it were, <laughs> realizing that these are like, like is, is that a way you can read that? I think what Jesus is saying here... Scott says no. Scott says no. That's a, that's a hard no from Scott. <laughs> Jeff's not here. I'm asking for Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, what ahead. I think is happening here, right, is just as... And I, I talk about this, right, in the book. We can probably lead into that. Sure. The hell in regards to the hell chapter. I can't wait. 
Jesus talks to people in the Gospels based off what they already believe. Yeah, yeah. Right? He works with, again and again, like I said with the Sadducees, he, without them bringing it up, he works with whatever preconceptions of the canon they already have. Mm. Works with the Pharisees, he works with their preconceptions they already have. He is someone who tries to reach each audience in the Gospels where they are. And that's especially true in, in some interesting ways with hell. But the thing is, is that in that respect, Jesus, I believe, is using the preconceptions and ideas that people have about the Book of Tobit, about how marriage works, about divorce. And what he's trying to do is essentially bring these things together in a way in which he can argue that, look, yes, adultery has been opened up. No, divorce should not be looked at in such an open way. And at the same time, it's between people and God, because God is ultimately the one who is guiding, and people can only respond to and deal with God, right? Jesus is not legislating, hey, guess what? We need new enforcements of divorce laws. Guess what? You guys need to be enforcing on how you institute this or do that. The big major point here is God will write everything in the end. Yeah. There will so be no, a path no, made forward. There's no soulmate in the afterlife. And I think I think the passage, um, so you, even, well, they, they start with, you, they might be quoting Tobit. I'm not going to make that argument. Yeah, but, but that the in Matthew twenty two twenty nine, but Jesus answered and said to them, you are mistaken, not understanding the scriptures, nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. That right. To, yeah. To be saying that no, there's no, there's no time Hold on. in the afterlife. Haven't you seen City of Angels with Nicolas Cage and Meg Ryan? Uh, clearly that point of angels in heaven declares that there's a connection. Yeah. Romantic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I've seen that. Um, so I, I know I don't want to, I do have to, I do need to respond. Oh, sure, sure, sure. In respect to the fact that, um, so what those words, right. You, there's neither people who marry, right. They make a conscious choice and there is neither uh, being given in marriage, someone else is making the choice for the woman to be placed into a marriage. Both of those things have to do with humans making decisions. The important issue in regards to the book of Tobit um, is that in Tobit's theology, Tobit is told by the angel Raphael that God ordains the marriage that should occur. It's been decided. No human makes that decision. So what's important is in the context of a Tobit theology of marriage, um, there is no human agency in that decision. So when you get to heaven, it would the words of Jesus do not contradict, is my point, the message in Tobit. So we do know, and this is important, I, I actually presented a paper at the Society of Biblical Literature in Italy last year um, looking at this specific issue and, and approaching it, because the book of Tobit, we now know, was scripture for a number of Jews at the time of Jesus. We know that Jews who were listening to Jesus, talk to the Sadducees, would have, uh, to various degrees, felt that the theology in Tobit was binding as scripture. So whether or not, right, and this is an important point that we could then lead into the discussion on hell, potentially, if you want to, is the issue of, right, when Jesus talks, right, there is an important difference to kind of kind of peel out like an onion layer. Is 
is what I'm hearing exactly what Jesus himself wants to reveal as truth, or is Jesus revealing a principle using the ideas of the audience he's around? You know, there's the difference between, okay, Jesus said it, great, but is Jesus echoing a bunch of points that others are, list, uh, are believing in order to get a deeper point across? That's a different question. So in this case, all I'm pointing out is how the context of Second Temple Judaism and the different beliefs around Jesus can help us to actually hear things going on in those conversations that we otherwise wouldn't in order to kind of get a deeper appreciation of, in fact, the kinds of messages Jesus was trying to deliver and how might we now listen to them differently in our own context. Yeah, that's good. Hey, real quick, just going back to the certificate of divorce in Matthew 5. Um, so he uses two different words. So one, for, except for the reason of unchastity, and that word is uh, porneia. And the word adultery that he uses, uh, but I say to you that every, in verse 28, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery. That's a that's a different word, uh, moikio. Um, so it's not the uh, it's not the moikio that they would be the reason for divorce. It would be the unchastity, the pornea. I just so just to point out, there are two different. No, thank words. you for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That and that's 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 why I saved myself by not trying to make an argument. <laughs> Man, yeah. so. Uh, this I'm not a Greek. I don't know Greek. I just I can use. Tools. No, thank you, Scott. So, I appreciate it. And I don't know Latin per se. <laughs> but you are lava. <laughs> per se is Latin, by the way. Continue. <laughs> Apparently, neither do we. Okay, hold on. I got. I'm going to do a call back here, real quick. That joke was an Eddie Izzard joke, who was told to me first by Ralph Polendo, who bounds the. Uh, <laughs> is boutique, the publisher boutique publishing company he's the boutique publishing company he's choir uh, who's done your book so ralph polendo and i have a long a long friendship and he's the one who told me that joke. oh scott's holding up a choir hat hey. representing and when i i looked at choir. i looked at the landing page for your book on the choir website which is choir.com uh not spelled like you think it is q u o i r and your your promo video, the guy asking you questions, Barrett Johnson. Do you know Barrett? <laughs> we we've had him on the podcast before, and uh, I've I, he's a friend. I've um, seen him multiple times. I've just known Barrett for ten years. Yeah. So it, it's awesome. Yeah, Barrett's great, and it was just funny because I I didn't know that that he was uh, doing those types of things for choir. So that's great. Yeah, he's he's an awesome guy. He's awesome. I, I enjoyed that interview so much. He made I was so nervous. He made that so easy. Yeah, he's easy to talk to. Um, okay, so given that this entire book, every chapter in this book is, uh, in fact, a can of worms. Like I wanted to dig into Abraham, but I want to skip over that now. You can, because I'll get into that later. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is gonna be a four-hour podcast. Um, but actually one of my notes about Abraham was that was his greatest, was a, his big mistake that he in fact believed, like believed God at the beginning because he, he got Isaac to go and go up the mountain and go to 
follow the orders. I'll go back to my notes. I'm not doing a good job. <laughs> no, I think you're doing fine. I think the audience might be the one that would be a little confused. As to uh, that's that's very what? nice of you. Yes, that's so. In Abraham, uh, I was going to go straight to hell. Um, <laughs> well, but, but I got sidetracked by Abraham. I mean, you still may. I still might. <laughs> but for me, heaven and hell. A poll for your audience. You don't want to know. Oh. Uh, <laughs> If they're the conservative end of the audience, I'm definitely going to hell. Ask Scott. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> you break down all these stories. So the first half of the book is stories that you really dig into and break down how we may be reading them. Wrong might not be the right word, but we're, we're missing key details when we don't really pay attention and or no original language or study that stuff. The Abraham story... There's so much in there that we just, we miss growing up hearing the tale of how Abraham had great faith and that, you know, he trusted God and he went to go sacrifice his son. And, uh, but, but, uh, one of the things I thought was like, is Abraham's mistake? And then you can comment on this, that he prepared to kill his son at all. Yes. How much of this is Abraham doing the nudge, nudge, wink, wink? We're going up on the hill, you know, going to sacrifice, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. We all know this isn't really going to happen. I actually like that you called out like these little details, like we're coming back when he's talking to his servants. I think that's awesome. Like, yeah, he, he recognizes that. But but I'll let you finish your question before. No, I... that, was basically, that was basically it. It was more of a comment. Like what, I guess, what are the big things we get wrong about that, uh, that story, not wrong, but maybe what are the things we're missing that we typically... Right, because that's a hard story for a lot of people. It should be a hard story for a lot of people. I'd hope so. Right? If it's not, you got a problem. There's a problem. Yeah. <laughs> the right, right, right. And most people, and, and I actually like the point that you... Oh, sorry. I'll let you finish your thought there and you no, respond before I add a second question on top of a question. Okay, which is, I'll just, I'll let Matthew go for it. What do you have to say about Abraham? I think like... I think obviously for the audience listening, they should—they probably have started to guess what you guys didn't say out loud. <laughs> I have an—I have a new interpretation of Abraham's story in which in which Abraham didn't believe God was actually going to have him kill his son, uh, and, and and so in some sense it was a big game of chicken. So for those listening, and they're like, "Okay, where is this question coming from? Why would he be asking?" Yeah. that's why. Yeah. Um, Thank you for doing a better job than I could. I appreciate. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 was I didn't know anything about the book. Of it. No, it's great. Who would ask why he was wrong? <laughs> like, where would that stem from? Why would someone assume a faithful Abraham did something wrong? Um, so I think, like, well, I mean, first of all, like, you have to, to, you know, obviously where I'm coming from in this, you know, off the bat from a place of faith is looking at the story in John 8 where Jesus is talking and he goes ahead and, you know, says, you know, he's responding to the, the leaders who say, well, Abraham's our father. And Jesus says to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing what Abraham did. But now you're trying to kill me. This is not what Abraham did. You're indeed doing what your father does because your father's the devil and you choose to do your father's desires because he was a killer. Um, and so what's fascinating, you know, that drove me so much on this question is how Jesus is contrasting Abraham 
as not wanting to kill and not being involved with murder in comparison to the devil who wants murder and why Abraham's children aren't really Abraham's children if they act in ways contrary to um, to, to to Abraham. And in this case, right, he's talking to people who are planning to put Jesus to death. And in, in a very typical, common, evangelical way of thinking, that would be exactly <laughs> be exactly on track with the traditional Abraham interpretation. Yes, sacrifice the Son of God for the right. But in this case, Jesus is saying, "Nope, yeah, this is the opposite of Abraham." So that was really fascinating to me to want to know. Well, how how do you interpret the story of Abraham when it's not seen as Abraham wanting to? And of course, you know, you go through all the the interesting verses, and then. What you also notice, too, is that the Bible has a general condemnation of this kind of action. In fact, one psalm goes so far as to say it's a sacrifice to demons, if you ever think right. that Yahweh wants you to, to offer your child. It's not Yahweh, it's a demon right. asking you. Which leads, obviously, to the question you're asking, which is, well, was it, in fact, potentially a failure on the part of Abraham to have even started on the journey? Should he have not just said, absolutely not? And I'll give two reasons why I'd say that I don't think so. Um, the first reason is Abraham has no reason to think explicitly that God wouldn't want this to happen. So this one was a, this one's a mind blower for me when I, when I kind of went through quote deconstruction myself, like over the last, you know, five, seven years, that, that idea of like child sacrifice and ancient mindset this keep going. This is like a mind. This was a mind blower to me. Like what? I mean, Continue because I think you're going to argue against yourself as you keep going. Ooh, shots fired. <laughs> keep going though. It's amazing <laughs> in the sense that, like, when you think about um, where our morality is, and our morality is essentially to think, oh, well, you know, sacrificing a child in a religious act is abhorrent. You wouldn't ever want it to be terrible. And then when you actually go back to the ancient literature and you realize, oh, actually, even out, aside from sources outside the Bible, the Bible itself says there was a large group of people strong for hundreds of years in Jerusalem sacrificing their kids for Yahweh up until the destruction of Babylon. So that wow. tested in Scripture. Yeah. And even Jeremiah comes out and says with God's voice, you think I ever asked you for your sons? I never wanted your sons. It never came into my mind to have such an act. Never. So in that respect, you just think to yourself, okay, well, this is this is strange, right? That First of all, just the context in which the story would have been written in, there were actually Jews who were doing this, uh, and Israelite, Israelites doing this as their religious practice for, for worship of Yahweh. And, and, so, just, and just to be clear, they weren't taking an Old Testament or Levit um, uh, sacrificial law from Exodus for Leviticus, and, and using that, they they were doing this on their own. There was a specific sacrificial system given about you know bulls and sheep and goats and birds, and they went and did they did the sacrifices that the other groups were doing, which they were never commanded to do in Levitical law. Right? I mean that that's pretty much the context of. Because Levitical law didn't exist at this time, right? Yeah, and of course, like, th there's two questions here, right? Like, I feel like Scott is, is asking about the specific activity of these Israelites who are in Jerusalem doing this. And in that right. respect, yeah, when they write, when they're doing this, the laws appear to be 
already established and, and in our collection we have in Scripture outlining that this is abhorrent. And you have prophets like Jeremiah who are speaking out against them and, and saying that this is wrong. In fact, the prophets pretty much overall were, had a long history of being against this activity. So uh, although it should, be, it should be understood and remembered that those doing it were fully believing the prophets were incorrect and false— and that they were following, in their minds, the correct way of worshiping Yahweh. That was their delusion that they were under uh, and believed. But part of the problem is, right, not only was this conceivable for some within Yahweh worship, uh, and it was endorsed by the king, some of the kings of Israel as well, but on top of that, the other nations, it was also yeah. common, uh, not necessarily common, but it was common enough that people could perceive it and understand it as something that actually happened. So in that context, right, what you've got then is a story that is now set way before Moses, that's set at a time in which Abraham is a coming from a pagan culture, out of a pagan uh, cultural context. His views of divinity match on to those other cultures. And where the stories of Abraham reveal God is basically like a journey. God is is leading Abraham, revealing himself over time. It's not like Moses, per se, where it's like there's a big Sinai event and laws and all these things. Abraham's on a journey of discovery. So first point is just Abraham in his journey never is said to have been given any perspective on what God's view of child sacrifice would be if it was different from any of the other deities. So to begin with, there's nothing in the narrative to lead you to believe that Abraham should have any reason to doubt that when God says something like, go sacrifice your son, that this is absurd. His first thought would culturally be, oh, you're, oh, okay, I didn't guess that. But then, you you know, you'd presume he'd think, okay, you're like that other God over there. Right. You, you also have that desire that some religions, do. okay, well, I'm discovering, okay. That would be your expectation. Now, the other point, though, of why I said I don't think that you should judge that it was wrong is in part because of uh, basically what Abraham may or the author of the story may believe about uh, the sort of careful dance between divinity and and struggle. So Kierkegaard also deals with this issue. Soren Kierkegaard, when he writes uh, Fear and Trembling, um, and that's a, it's another interesting story in the sense that just as many people miss a lot of details in the actual Abraham story in Genesis, lots of people miss details in Soren Kierkegaard's book, Fear and Trembling. Um, Kierkegaard's position is actually really, really nuanced, and it falls basically, skipping a lot of details we could go into that would be boring, it basically falls into the idea that Abraham uh, has to follow the order because it's a divine command, and the order to go to the mountain is itself not immoral. So he has to follow and walk. But he has the freedom and faith to know God well enough to doubt that this is correct and that it won't happen. So in this respect, I would say that I think Abraham uh, feels obliged to go to the place God tells him, knowing, however, in his heart that this is not going to happen the way that it's being said and this is, of course, my argument, right? This is the, the unique argument I spin on this, is that quite to the contrary of expectations, the fact that Abraham would doubt God's word about killing his son is the actual true affirmation of his faith, 
since there is no reason for him to doubt that God is like any of the other gods, other than the journey he's led, that he would have to intuit this, that would mean and reflect on that, yes, Abraham truly was a friend of God, that he knew God's heart so well that, like Jesus said, Abraham was far away from any thought of death, and he understood that God's mode of being was away from death. And in fact, in— Which is to say that that Abraham sees a distinction between— God and and the other cultural versions of God, God's lowercase, exactly. that were existing. Without God needing to specify it to him. Right, exactly. So, Because you even call that out, that like he, he's recognizing that there's a difference here, and that plays into his interpretation of what's going on there, right? That plays into his, his understanding and his actions that, um, because I know that God, my God, is different from those other lowercase g gods, that exist out there, or may, <laughs> the perception of them exists out there, um, I'm, I'm going to modify my interpretation of this command because, because I believe in the outcome, because I, believe, because I have a fundamentally different understanding of who my God's character is, or what my God's character is, right? And because- there was a promise, yeah, there was a promise that God made that it was through Isaac that the, the promise would come that that all um, that all the nations of the earth will be blessed in Abraham through Isaac. So he had that promise as well, and that and he believed in yeah. that, that promise that yeah. God made. And in some sense, what what you're getting at the heart of here is there's a, a, a certain a certain conviction about consistency with God, that God is not going to change from what God has declared, that God is not going to diverge, that God, and this is, of course, something that, you know, I point out in story after story, where the basis of the claim um, is from God himself. Like, you're, you're, yeah. John Calvin, I quote, you know, puts it, you're, you're basically drawing from the heart of God against the words of God. Your, your basis in why you're rethinking through what God has said or resisting is specifically because of what you've experienced or heard from right. God already. Well, I'm going to put a... Because I, of... Yeah, that's good. I want to put a pin in the idea of anthropomorphism there that you're kind of alluding to a little bit. But the 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 real... Here's the good controversial question. As I was reading into this that I thought, I was like, oh man, I want to hear what Matthew has to say about this. Because you use... You, you have a line in there in that first chapter that says that this was a game of chicken. And that's and there was two things. There's two lines in there. there. This was a game of chicken between God and Abraham, and then then there was another line in there where you basically said that God, or that Abraham dared God, right? Use this word dared. And and here's what I struggled with was um, those the way of positioning God in those terms seems very contradictory to the character of who God is because you position God as, as quite literally playing games with people. And, and that I struggled in my, in my own mind to find out like, where does that align with the character of who God is? Why would God choose to play games with his people? And I was curious what your response would be to, to something like that. Because, because again, I look at this as, as the game of chicken, like the way that you describe it, it comes across as manipulative, Right, which does not align with the character of who God is in the rest of Scripture. 
or does it? Surprised. I'm actually surprised you asked that, given the stories covered in the following two chapters after this one. Because, like, God attacking Jacob at the Javik River, God wanting to kill every man, woman, and child under night, underneath Sinai, and and uh, and bickering with with Moses, and and there, there's like so many aspects here. I'm, I'm surprised, but let me let me play with this. So, first of all, I would argue manipulation is not wrong if what you're manipulating already has a settled outcome. Then it's merely a show. Okay, well, hold on, hold on. I'm going to pause you. <laughs> I got to pause you because then it's not man- manipulation at all. There is no manipulation. Exactly. If there, if there is, so, so you've got to erase the, you've got to erase the first part of your sentence, right? So it doesn't matter. Well, so, right. So there's no manipulation. I'm but playing with your words. But you're posing the story in the story that I have. Right. The interpretation I'm giving, Abraham already doubts what God said. What? He's not coming. There's no that right. So here's the point. This is the nudge, nudge, wink, wink, right? Like, okay, we're going up there to sacrifice. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Wait, say say that again, my, Matthew. That that wh- what is the the doubt? So the like, think about the very opening of the story, right? The first verse. God tests Abraham, right? The test, mm-hmm. right? So first of all, we just have to deal with the fact that the story is intended as a test. So if the test is not whether or not you will be willing to sacrifice your son, because anachronistically, back then, that was not a major test. A pagan could have gone ahead and followed sure. with that. Right. All right, well, then what is the test? And my argument is the test is that Abraham will hold on to his conviction that God isn't this way. So that, that God will stop him. That God will stop him before he does it. That that's the faith? Yeah, the faith that God is not going to allow this action to occur forward. And in fact, furthermore than that, that as he tells Isaac, God will provide a a, a, a lamb instead. That God is going to provide a substitute right. for this. He is going right. to provide the sacrifice. It will not be you. And the- Keep in mind, Isaac is like 30 years old at this point. <laughs> he's like, he's not the... A very debatable. Point. He's not a child. He, he's not. He's not. He's not a small child, though. That is yeah, a debated I, point, but sure, I'll yeah, go with it. Okay. On how can you I read? read yeah. Can I read Hebrews um, eight yeah, text eleven? It. Yeah, Hebrews eleven eighteen um, and nineteen. It was. It was he to whom it was said, "In Isaac, your descendants shall be called." In verse nineteen. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead. Oh, you're sneaking. So received him back as a type. That was going to be my follow-up question. What if God saved Isaac after he was actually <laughs> sacrificed? Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> well, now you at least... Oh, well, it's fine. Just, just to, no, it's good. It's a part of the discussion. Right? Oh, it's a very good one, yeah. You want me to answer? Oh, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, miss. Yeah, no. So, no, there's a reason why I don't. So, the logistical reason. I've had people bring this up, and then once I talk it with them, they're like, oh, now I understand why you didn't. But, like, logistically, why I don't include that verse yet is because it would just muddy the waters before you got through chapters three and four. So, I just, like, that is less alluded to 
but then like the point is by the time you reach chapter seven you kind of can guess the answer hopefully already by the point you get there but i allude to this actually in the chapter i, I mentioned that it can't be that that uh abraham or that isaac was expected to have been thought to be resurrected because the idea of resurrection is not part of the Jewish religion until the Second Temple period. So the idea of resurrection is actually affirmed and disavowed in Scripture in the Hebrew Bible. Like the book of Job talks about resurrection as something he wishes so badly would be true in life, but it's not because humans are trees and when they fall, they will never be risen back by God again. Like the idea of resurrection is a, a sort of prophetic gift that is uh, that is suddenly made available as knowledge during the period before Jesus, but it's not during the period in which the story of Abraham gets written down. Now, I can't say anything about necessarily what Abraham himself believes, because, you know, he's a character, and also he's a historical figure in the story that goes way back. But what I can say is that when the story was written down, and when people were reading that story throughout the Hebrew Bible period, they were not reading it in regards to resurrection, which means they had to interpret it without that premise. Now, the book of Hebrews, that letter is getting written at the time in which resurrection is a given. Everyone now is inculcated with that idea in Second Temple Judaism. It's just a given. So from his perspective, it makes total sense but this suddenly now makes sense as a, as a potential reason. It's just, unfortunately, anachronistic. He's doing the same kind of thing we're doing when we think that Abraham should be abhorred by the child sacrifice. He's reading his own current understanding and theology back into the story. And so in this case, because of what the Bible itself in the Hebrew Bible says about the beliefs of the people then, we can recognize that while this is pastorally innovative and interesting that what Hebrews was trying to do, because it saw the same problems, it won't do if we want to try to understand how did the Israelites who first read this story and who first wrote it imagine that story. And so that, that possibility just is off limits if that's what we're looking for. This okay. All of this stuff, it can be head spinning when. So, my, I was going to ask when we first started this, how did you go in go through divinity school, and have your faith intact? But it sounds like from the beginning you've you've just been in this. I, I know so many people that feel like when they went to when they um, went to school, some sort of seminary where they feel like they were just, they're trying to break people's faith down and get people out that don't want to be there and just separate the wheat from the chaff kind of a thing. Like all this stuff, like the progression of what they actually knew it, when you grow up, at least the way I did fundamental ish, pretty conservative. Um, and then you start to learn about like, if we ever get into hell tonight <laughs> about how, how, you know, the, the idea of resurrection... Matthew's like, it's tomorrow already, but continue. I'm listening. <laughs> <laughs> Time travel. Uh, the the progression of belief, you just... Uh, growing up, you can read the Bible simply and think, this is the way... This is the template that God gave us. And then when you, if you really dig into it, you realize, oh, these people didn't have a concept of resurrection. They didn't have a concept of hell the way we thought of it. There, it's like Sheol was a place where everybody went and... Um, there wasn't a, 
there wasn't this concept of eternity that later developed or did it. It's definitely not the sense of eternity that we have. Um, it's like, how do you, you went to school and your convictions grew, you changed a little bit. Like how, how did that happen for you? It's a great question. Um, I'll try to make it short so that it <laughs> take away from hell. Just tell us when you got your when you got your wand at Hogwarts. That's what we really want to yes, know. That's what, yeah. <laughs> I wish I had a story. <laughs> I, mean, I went to Hogwarts and I didn't get no wand. Oh, I mean, I thought you were at Wizard School. That's where you went to, right? Yes. <laughs> Yale Universal Studios does not like to reveal. <laughs> <laughs> secret passages secret passages to to yale divinity school <laughs> um, no the funny thing is is that actually so when i was a teenager i actually grew to be very disinterested in scripture like genuinely i i i came to think of the bible as basic instructions before leaving earth and so i knew the basic instructions so i could really care less if i didn't know some story in the book of judges or i didn't know some story in the hidden in the book of numbers it's like well it's not the basic instructions so if i don't know it it's fine so i really never read the bible very often and it wasn't now mind you at the same time because my mom had raised me so much with like this personal relationship with jesus then I was extremely spiritual and cared deeply about my relationship with God. But I didn't tie that with scripture because I thought like, oh, I got the info. I got the gnosis. I got the knowledge. I'm good on that. So then I was just like, okay, I got God here and I got all this doctrinal and gnosis stuff here on the side. So then when I was graduating from high school, I actually came across Bart Ehrman's uh, book on New Testament textual criticism, uh, Misquoting Jesus. And it was the first time I ever read anything about scholarship. And the funny thing about Ehrman, for those that know about Ehrman's reputation, whatever, that book has like such a negative reputation among evangelicals as being like this work, which just like has deconstructed and destroyed so many or made people yeah. doubt. And for me, it was the opposite. It saved my faith. Backfired. Enough. Funny enough, right? Ha, joke's on you, Ehrman. <laughs> I've actually met Ehrman twice, but I don't think he remembers me at all. It was like at SBL meetings. And, and I actually wrote a message to him telling him. But like, the thing is... You saved my faith, Bart. Thank you. Yeah, that's not your goal. And I mean, that's fine. But like, it, it did, because what happened was, is that I suddenly saw that I played a role as a human being. Like, like, oh my goodness, wait, there are humans who have to look at the verses in Scripture and figure out and judge, like, what manuscripts go in and what, what verses could potentially be there, what verses need to be taken out, and that this process has been going on, right? All of a sudden, humans are, like, the caretakers of the Scriptures, and they're actually involved in thinking through these things. Oh my goodness, it's not just a one-way love letter. I get to yeah, the yeah. letter, <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> And so for me, it just suddenly blew everything away and it made everything static and boring look dynamic. And so this was the key. Because my mom had done such a good job of making sure that my spirituality was not tied to doctrines, when the doctrine suddenly and the history and the conceptual ideas suddenly fell into doubt and questioning, my relationship with God didn't get affected at all. I love that. Tie the two together. I didn't have the two connected. So one didn't suffer because of the other. So all of a sudden... I was like mildly upset at certain televangelists I'd watched who led me astray in thinking about Oh yeah. But then 
the next step was, oh, hey, well, I could be upset about what I didn't know what God was doing, or I could just like suddenly yeah. throwing myself and trying to figure out where he's been all along when I wasn't looking. That's interesting. Where I threw myself into, and because of that, it then uh, led me to start looking for books and materials that I hadn't seen before and trying to throw myself into a question of where is God in this? Where is the Holy Spirit moving in this? Where can I see things? So then I went to uh, Lockyer University, which was a Seventh-day Adventist school, and I went to I went to it for, for the sake that I wanted a Christian college and La Sierra was, at that time, the only Adventist school that, like, all its faculty had degrees from non-Adventist schools. So I was like, all right, this, these, these are people who haven't been in the, in the bubble. Like, they're, they've, they've, they've been pushing themselves outside of my own community. I want to go there. And it super prepped me well and helped me to think through how to understand these things from a point of faith. And, you know, you, you talk about how sometimes people feel like seminary classes are trying to, like, separate the wheat and the chaff. Let me throw lots of stuff at you. And, like, I, th I can understand that to a certain degree with ministry. Like, you know, oh, you want to daily interact with these things with people and, and, and balance their spirituality. Okay. But, like, genuinely, it's just not a good approach when it comes to people in terms of theology. You, you, you have to understand that people need to be walked, like, it, like, okay, take the documentary hypothesis, documentary hypothesis, the authorship of the Torah, the, all these issues. I think it took me like a year, just like a straight up year of wrestling with that issue for me to be able to feel at all comfortable trying to wrap my head. And, and it was like the weirdest things that would conceptually help me to try to figure things. It's like, come on, this is the problem, right? We, we struggle, we learn through over time. And yet, like, we expect once we figured it out and we start giving it to people that, like, instantaneously you're going to just get this. And if you don't, there's a problem. Like, hello, that's not the way we work. That's not the way nope. faith works. That disciples were, like, three years with Jesus. And at the end, what does the Gospels of John and Luke tell us? They didn't really understand anything until after he came back. No. Yeah. Oh, ouch. That's like a failure. You went through, like... You went through your MDiv program. <laughs> you didn't learn anything. And, <laughs> and after your graduation, you're like, oh, that freshman level intro class. I think I'm getting that point the teacher was making. Like, that's the Christian walk because that's the human walk. Like, we go through that. And so for my, my sake, I do struggle with a lot of stuff. But what I had to learn to do to enjoy the journey was to be able to say, it's okay that I don't know something right now. It's okay yeah. that yeah. I don't have an answer, that I'm not certain on this point. It will come when it comes. Or if God's ready, I'll be able to handle it. If it comes, if not, I can learn to put aside my desires in order to keep going forward. Right. Or, yeah, which you kind of alluded to, the, or, or it won't ever come. And actually, like, resting in the fact that you're not going to solve this one. And, and, like, in some ways, there is comfort in that, right? Because if you can solve all those things, then how small is your God? Right? It, it, Good point. If, if, you can, if you can calculate all the stuff and, and develop all the formulas and go, and this is the culmination of who God is, and I understand it in its entirety, then we have a very, very small God. But being comfortable with the mystery is... Uh, I think is a good sign of maturity. It doesn't mean that we don't want to unpack some of these mysteries, 
it just means that when we encounter those things that we like struggle with and go, I can't understand this and I can't, I, I can't fathom the depths of this. It's almost like, thank goodness. Thank goodness I can't understand the depths of this because if, if I could, I think we're all in trouble. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and, and another great example of this is uh, take like the book of Job where in the book of Job, God has this big showdown with him and is talking to him. And Another terrific chapter in your book, yeah. by the way. <laughs> well, I, I, thank you. But like in respect, like not, not going necessarily towards the chapter. Right, right, right. The point of how unique it is that when God talks to Job, he talks to Job just where he's at. And, and I mean that like in reference to like we were talking about Jesus and, and tying it back into the eventual discussion of hell. <laughs> <laughs> God goes ahead and actually talks to Job acknowledging things that aren't true. So, for example, twice God goes ahead and talks to Job and says, there are other gods. Oh, look at how they quaked at the creation of Leviathan. These other gods, they won't go near Leviathan because he's so great. Only I am able to be able to do it, not those other gods. Why? Because Job is taking place in a polytheistic world. He's not in Israel. He's far outside that realm. He comes from a culture like Abraham with a bunch of other stuff. God's not interested in having a monotheism discussion with him. By the way, Job, before we get to the points I want to get to, we've got to take you through a couple of these fundamental beliefs. You've got to first learn and get on yeah. after that Bible study lesson, yeah. baptismal classes, then we can start going on. <laughs> issues I want to get you to. Right. God's like, all right, you think this way, I need to get it across to you. Let's do it this way. I'm going to start using these analogies. And it's beautiful in a sense that it helps to establish and understand that, you know, what we're used to reading Scripture as is hyper, a hyper assumption that, oh, okay, if he said this, then absolutely that already solves it. He must believe that that's true or that this must be what God wants you to think is accurate. It's like, no, God, if God can speak to people in the Bible with their assumptions, how much more do you think that God is speaking through people in the Bible using their assumption? Mm -hmm. That's so good. That's so good. So. Well, I mean, you know, can you do, t can I, you do hell in 10 minutes? I, I know. Can, <laughs> that's a, You read my mind. Because because Matthew has a morning that's going to come sooner than ours will for sure. Don't worry about me. And, uh, you, and I appreciate it. You're probably already too tired. No, no, and I think it's great. And 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 I feel like this part of this is a little bit backwards. But but I do I am looking for like you know the short version of of what was that moment when you're sitting here. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna like try to paint a picture here. Maybe I'm gonna tell your story for you, Matthew. You're sitting in this East Coast cafe and you're pondering some very deep scripture. Thank you for saying Soren Kierkegaard, so we didn't mistake it earlier for like Derek Kierkegaard. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you used his first name. <laughs> uh, but uh, but I imagine you sitting there and all of a sudden you're like, wait a minute, hold on, Google, Google, Google. No one's written a book about this. How's that? How is that possible? Should I write a book about this? What if I wanted to write a book about this? Wait a second. I know Ralph Polendo. He's a he's a publisher. I'm I'm making lots of assumptions here. So I I'm just curious. Like, what's the short version of of how you went from these are some ideas that I had to 
I should write this as a book too. And now this is a book. Yeah, no, that's that's a great question. It's it's actually a very different story than that. <laughs> what? No, 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 no. <laughs> Whatever the story is, I need you to fit into the context, the narrative that I just gave you. <laughs> yeah, you're God. Speak to speak to Andy where he's at. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. So <laughs> what ended up happening was that, um, and I tell the story partially uh, to a degree in the introduction about like. How I initially had these ideas start was in an undergraduate class at La Sierra in California, uh, not here at Yale, where I was going ahead and, and trying to wrestle with the question of Euthyphro's dilemma, this question that Socrates puts out there, Plato writing, in which essentially you have this question about where morality comes from. Oh, yeah. At the heart, it's what my book is really getting at. Yeah, that's a very Plato thing, right? Yeah, and the next book I'm writing is basically an academic version of this book and, and really goes into that question of where morality is located in God's character and how does this make sense in the Christian tradition. But, like, the basic point is the question that, you know, Euthyphro puts out here as a dilemma is, is you know, is something good because the gods like it or is something good because the gods declare it? Uh, and, um, you know, if one is true, then goodness is like a separate God. And if one, uh, if the other is true, then goodness is arbitrary and it never sits well with anybody. Right. Me, like the big concern that I had in that class was recognizing that there are stories in the Bible where characters say no to God. It's kind of like, that's the, that's the title of the book. Um, you know, you have Moses, you know, in Exodus 32, who's, who's facing off with God and actually tells him, no, you can't do something this is evil, it's wrong, and God agrees. And those stories are always overlooked in the sense that they don't want to deal with them, because usually the issue isn't even morality. The issue is usually focused on in regards to foreknowledge. And in fact, these texts have become very popular for questions of open theism and so forth. And the real issue that you know I had was, well, what ever gave the idea to Moses that he could tell God no, whatever gave him the idea that thy will be done is not the correct approach, that he should resist, and, and where does that idea come from? And so, of course, I went delving into that. But at the time when I wanted to delve into that, um, I was required to go ahead and do, uh, I was in the honors program, and I needed to do a scholarship project. Solid, humble brag, continue. <laughs> I'm just messing with you. I'm, keep going. Like it, it's funny. No one was happy about this. In the <laughs> it all sounded so sweet in, in freshman year, and then afterwards, we're like, "Oh my goodness, we've all made a terrible, <laughs> terrible mistake." <laughs> we graduate, um, but like the thing is, like one of the things they threw at us besides needing to write like a dissertation was like we had to freaking go ahead and come up with a community involvement project. And I, I just did not want to have, I don't know, part of me was like, I don't want to go and have to do some like, like advertisement thing with an organization or something. Like I, I was very much a, a thinker and someone who wanted to write and other stuff. So I was like, I was like, all right, fine. It probably is going to be shot down. And I went to my teacher and I said, is it because it's a year long project? And I was like, can I write a book? <laughs> like, I'll write a book that tries to help touch on issues that affect communities and divide them in faith and can be used by communities to hopefully bring churches that are divided between liberals and conservatives and give them a middle ground in scripture that they can meet at. And he said, yeah, go for it. 
And he later revealed to me that he never expected I would finish it. <laughs> he was like, I thought, I mean, yeah, you could either go spend a weekend at a soup kitchen or you could write a full book. <laughs> I know, I know. Year-long endeavor with, with Eric. So, I mean, like, but what I did is I threw myself into it and I did finish it within the school year. Wow. I finished, I finished the entire first draft of the book. Prolific. And he was shocked. Uh, and, and so was I a little bit. <laughs> I threw myself into it. Um, and so I wrote the first draft, and then I went ahead, as I was getting closer to graduation, my fifth year, I went ahead and, and was trying to figure out who could publish it. And when I, I remember uh, there is a super progressive publisher, I've mentioned this story many times, and I always leave the name out on purpose, there's a super progressive publisher, <laughs> you can imagine the most progressive publisher you could imagine that would uh, publish progressive Christian works, and I went to them. If there was a Christian MSNBC, this would be them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're so close. <laughs> so I go ahead and talk to them, and I'm like, hey, I have this book, and I know later, say the title, then this marketing girl is there, and she says, why would I ever want to say no to God? And she had the most dumbfounded look on her face, that was no different than a fundamentalist or anybody else. It was just like the most, most sincere. Uh, uh, and it was at that moment I was like, ah, this book cuts across the progressive and conservative divide. This book gets to an issue that is so intrinsic to the mindset of every religious person, an assumption of how divinity relates to authority and humans. And, and so just right from the outset, uh, you know, it helped to establish that like progressives and conservatives don't really differ on the issue of inerrancy, except in reflection on the fact that conservatives think the Bible is inerrant and progressives don't. But they don't debate the actual premise of inerrancy as a doctrine itself. Like it's, they're pretty much on the same page. If God was there and he said something, it would be inerrant. But he isn't, and this isn't. <laughs> yeah. The debate often is about. But so. I tried getting it through that, and it wasn't really being successful. I was having people who were like, oh, I'm not sure. And, I mean, like they weren't even reading it. They were just debating the merits of whether it was marketable, it was too edgy, whatever. So eventually, um, I got in touch with somebody that I saw with an equally, you know, kind of edgy series of books. And, and I was like, oh, you know, your publisher, are they, they pretty interesting? Choir? Are, are they pretty good? And um, I reached out to several of the authors at Choir, and uh, Mark Gregory Karras, he went ahead and, um, and started talking with me. And Mark was just, he, he wrote the book Divine Echoes. Um, yeah, we had him on. We had him on. That was, that's a great book. And he has a new one out, too. I know. I got to reach out to him. More press and publicity. It's, it's, it's really sweeping. But he goes ahead and um, helps walk me through like questions and other things. And as he's doing that, at the same time, um, I had other authors who were just really, really kind and giving me feedback and giving me suggestions about their experiences. So anyways, eventually, um, Mark looked at the manuscript and then he, he went ahead and told Ralph, you have to get this guy. Like, And so like, it was really out of my hands. And Ralph is? Choir. Ralph. Yeah, Raphael Palando, the, the head of choir publication. Yeah, sorry, we all know, but just to, just for the listeners to be clear, yeah. You're not wrong. That I did write some chapters at a Barnes Noble cafe. <laughs> they were on a 
I part they were on a bed. I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. I wasn't wrong. You could have just said I wasn't wrong. <laughs> I had a phone call with Ralph, and um, and that was before I graduated. It took it. It basically took three years from when I first wrote the book until it eventually got published. Because basically, Mark was really kind. And he looked at the book manuscript. He said, "This is fantastic, and it's also a mess." You get edited. Yeah. So. There were so many edits, and I owe Mark so much credit for how he was shifting chapters around to different locations where they were, especially in the beginning. And, um, and it just it came out. It was a long process. And it, I, so long, it was supposed to have been published before I came to Yale. And then it got published after I was at Yale, um, which was you know totally unexpected. But the thing was, it was a very long journey for a first book. But I was so happy by the end of it. And as Mark kept telling me, you'll be happy that it was edited. You'll be happy that it turned out. And I was. And it was a wonderful experience. Raphael has been an absolute, Ralph is just an absolute wonderful publisher. Um, he is so. And maybe even a better guy. <laughs> He's a great dude. It's just a person. You know, it's just incredible and has been so kind to me. And, uh, you know, he, he helped set up my website. Uh, all that there on MatthewJCortman.com. All that is is Raphael Palendo right there. Um, he is just fantastic. So I've I've had a wonderful experience at Choir, and that book's that book has been uh, a quite a journey. You know, when you go three years of trying to to wrestle with and then try to get it down on paper and edit it and then put it out and then market it and then share it with people and and so forth and still be writing other books and, and doing schoolwork and other projects and other dissertations and stuff. All of that is, is, is an experience. And it's, it's because, you know, I, I loved what JK Rowling once said in an interview, which is like, I didn't know what I believed until I had to write it down. Like there were spiritual things I didn't know I believed about life and the meaning of life until I started writing about Harry's stories and I had to shape them a certain way. Mm -hmm. I like realized retrospectively what that meant about my own beliefs. In many same ways, like when you write theology, you're really having to think through issues and shape issues and change issues. And there's yeah. danger with that too, in the sense that there are things like, you know, you'll write and then like later on you'll nuance and you'll think, oh, well, Hmm. You know, I like now, like, like, um, you know, I didn't in the book currently say no to God. Like there's not a huge emphasis on trying to read, uh, trying to interpret Jesus's crucifixion in regards to the theme of saying no to God. But like in my next book, like huge major theme, the cross crucifixion, how this plays a role, how Jesus uh, is in a sense, the second Jacob, like uh, Paul talks about the second Adam. Um, you know, so like it's interesting how your theology develops and how you think through things. So in one sense, like it's your theology that you're putting out there and sharing, and on the other hand, it's still shaping and developing. And and like you're you're talking about something from you know three years back in your theology or two years back in your theology, and you're already keep developing, and that's life. Uh, yep. I think the best thing I I honestly experienced one of the best things in this book was realizing that my ideas weren't original. And I really appreciated being able to go back to Martin Luther. And I mean, like in the book, I only share like a quote or two from Martin Luther, but like he, he harped on this topic. This was huge for his theology, mm. the idea of God playing games that already he knew the answer to. And so did the person he was playing with. 
the ultimate test of faith that the individual knew God well enough to know the difference between Satan and Yahweh, and that, or Jesus and Satan. And, you know, in my, in my hell chapter, you know, that's a major, that's just a major idea now, since we're apparently not going to talk about it, like, (laughs) (laughs) in the sense of understanding that, you know, Satan is not Jesus, Jesus is not Satan. So if you're going to talk about a doctrine of hell that starts to make Jesus look like Satan, you're running into a problem. And so, you know, in a major way, that was a huge argument, not the hell part, but the argument about understanding as a principle, Martin Luther really wanted to explain a lot of these stories that so many people find problematic by saying, like, look, God knows that this is an individual who's reached that point in their faith journey where it now comes down to really proving what they've got. Do you know who I am? Or do you just worship me because I'm a living God who's talking to you? Do you really understand my character? And, and in other words, do you, why do you worship me and not Marduk? You know, like, it, it, just because I talk to you shouldn't be the only criteria that you want to worship me. It should have to do with the kind of God I am, as opposed to the kind of God Marduk is. Right. That's why you worship me. And that's really, at its core, what my book is so focused on, is trying to highlight that character of God and really change the doctrine of inerrancy from the words of God to the character of God. I like that a lot. And, man, what I want to do, and I'm not sure we should, but um, just a couple of minutes since we've teased hell so much, not not to, like, solve hell, but a couple minutes of the progression throughout Scripture. So the average Christian thinks hell is just a thing that the Bible teaches, where there's this progression in Scripture of awareness or belief in hell, and some of the ideas about afterlife came from sources outside of Scripture. Um, as a teaser, maybe, maybe we can flesh this out. You can come back on if you'd be willing. We could do this again and really dive in. Yeah. <laughs> I could I, I could tell. But since we've mentioned it so much, the average Christian doesn't isn't aware of this progression. And just give us a little teaser, and then we can kind of close this thing. Yeah, because, you know, hell is just, you know. It's just little, yeah. That's just little, you know. I know. Another, I was on the What If podcast and recorded a, a whole episode on hell. <laughs> we, still, uh, we still didn't end up getting to the to the, uh, to the end. Oh, I bet. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're not going to do it whoa, justice. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You didn't get to the end of hell in a single podcast episode? <laughs> Weird. Look. <laughs> Okay. That's good. Don't get me started. Maybe in our next one too, we can also touch on the do you do you grasp the difference between trials and temptations, and which ones come from God and which one which ones don't. Ooh, and do I hear James in the background of that question? Hell yeah! Oh, I he mean, li- heck yeah! He lives downstairs. He's renting a room. <laughs> <laughs> so that's brilliant. I love that. <laughs> so basically, like right, the Bible's view of the afterlife is is fascinating in the sense that in the Hebrew Bible, you have really um, a plethora or at least around three possible options that you can kind of tease out. And of course, as always, it's always hard to tease out things that are in poetry because it's hard to know whether or not a description is intended to be literal 
or if only the principle behind it right. for sure literal. Like there's all the you're, you're trying to pull the meaning out of it. Right. Right. So there's some things there that, you know, you're you're forced if you're gonna ask what are the different views of the afterlife as a historian, you're kind of forced to accept at least possible every reference is literal and then try to take that seriously unless you find counter arguments. So in that respect, you have about three views you can find in the Hebrew Bible. One view is that the place of death, Sheol, is basically an unconscious state in which there is, you know, your soul dies, there's nothing left, all existence ceases, and so it's just a, it's just a metaphor of this is where you go with all the bodies in the ground at the end. That's it. Yeah. After life, it just ends, and a, and a number of Jews still hold to this view today. And... Um, okay, so there's that view. Then you've got a view which seem you got two views really, which seem to diverge only slightly. One is to argue in a sense that there's some some kind of limited understanding of Sheol as having spirits or shades in it, but like it's kind of an underworld that it lacks God. God's not there anymore. Um, righteous and sinner alike are just kind of stuck down there. And I don't know, I, in some sense, that almost kind of sounds like the, the, the view that, like, Pete, like, the Epistle of Peter's harrowing of hell scenario would make sense with, like, all right, they're just down there and, and, and hopeless and so forth. Um, and, and, and again, it, it's interesting how you read the material. Then other ones, this is important, in both of those two scenarios, the idea of Scripture that keeps getting repeated is they don't know anything that's happening above on the earth they're, they're not like spirits, you know, gliding through the earth trying to see what's going on. They're stuck down in shale. They don't know anything other than what they ever saw on their earth and whoever comes new. Then you got like the third view, which is seems to suggest that they can come back because you got like the story of Samuel coming back with Saul. And there's a couple references which are interesting, which talk about Yahweh being able to save one's soul from shale. Yes, metaphor. Nonetheless... Still, there's a hint here that Sheol may not be outside the reach of Yahweh, whereas some of the other verses that I was referencing do seem to suggest Yahweh and Sheol are completely mm. different. So there's hints of that. Now, by the time you come to the New Testament, you've gone through this whole Second Temple period, and in that period, a whole bunch of ideas were popping up about the afterlife. Ideas from the Book of Enoch, ideas that talk about uh, punishments, ideas about people waiting for judgments, all kinds of ideas that just were not part of the scenario in the Hebrew Bible. Like there was no, the day of judgment in the Hebrew Bible is not for the dead. It's for, largely, it's for the people who are living on the day of that judgment, uh, for, the, for the nations and others that are going to be judged in that moment and set things right. But over time, the Israelites and Jews eventually start to get this conception of a judgment applying to dead people as well as living, and the idea that living will go on living in another life, that God's ability to protect continues forward. So these themes build and grow in Scripture to the point that when you get to the Gospels, you get a host of views that are stemming from this. And so, you know, you've got views where Jesus goes around and talks uh, about some people and says, oh, well, they're only sleeping, right? And this is very much echoing that classic Sheol view where they're unconscious, they don't know anything that's going on, they're just, they ceased existence, uh, they're only sleeping. Suspended animation, right. Yeah, suspended animation, common motif in the Hebrew Bible. He talks about that. Then there are other times where 
he's talking and giving parables about people who are in hell right now and people in heaven and they're conscious and they're talking to each other and and they know what's going on and they can even communicate to the other people in the world. Okay, whoa, that changed it. Then he's talking to other people and he's saying, no, the, the dead are not in judgment, but awaiting judgment. There's fire coming. There's things about to come in the future. And this is, and then there's even, of course, the gospels even throw us in like a, a Jeopardy little, <laughs> a little bonus question. You got the, the disciples in the boat thinking that Jesus on the water is a ghost. Right. So what, that throws just another option. Okay, now there, there's even another view that Jesus himself doesn't give, the disciples do, that there might be ghosts who roam the land. So what you see is a super large conglomeration of different ideas, and here's the really interesting thing, most of them are stemming from Jesus. Jesus is talking to different groups, and he's talking using different metaphors and different language each and every time. And in fact, not just different metaphors, like one group, he talks about hell, and he says, hell, Hades, is, is just filled with fire and flames. Okay, what does that tell you? It's bright and it's hot. And then he goes talking to another group and exclusively says, and Hades is cold and dark and gloomy. Okay, that's the opposite of fire and, and brimstone and, and all these yeah. images. What? What's going on? And when you read literature like First Enoch and others, what do you find out? You find out that there were, there were visions of hell or the afterlife that were exclusively one or the other. And that different Jewish groups held to these different views, including like the sleep one, where there would have been Jews who rejected all these new Hellenistic ideas and were still keeping to the old view of Sheol. And so what do we see with Jesus doing here? He's reflecting all of these various views of hell each time he talks, which and, and not only just like various views of like the imagery of hell, but even various views of when hell's occurring. Is it in the future? Is it currently? Is it just not at all? And that creates the problem that like my book, of course, deals with a chapter on is, well, wait a minute, people are so concentrating on trying to look for Jesus to give them answers about hell, but if Jesus's answers are simply reflecting the the beliefs that people had yeah. at that time about hell, and his main point in giving those scenarios is just simply to you know teach some other point, well then that's a problem if we're all trying to read Jesus's words to give us info on the afterlife, but Jesus's words on the afterlife are just a reflection of popular ideas because that wasn't his main point. Is it popular ideas, or is it just like, is it quite simplistically, it's it's going to be the thing you don't like. Eskimos, it's going to be hot. People from Arizona, it's going to be cold. <laughs> <laughs> that could be, but it's yeah. still, like, it, that would be a very different hermeneutic for reading it uh, than it would be for, you know, say, uh, for current evangelicals, the way that they're using those verses, right? That would be radical, even your approach that you just said right now. Because again, like that's presuming that the language that's there about hell is not at all literal, and it's just trying to get a principle or point across. And that's just not the way that a lot of people are reading those passages on hell. But of course, you know, as you know, in my book, uh, we won't, I guess, go into it. But like in my book, we, I, I wish we could <laughs> no, we'll talk about like the general idea that the very concept of an eternally burning hell is at odds with the character of God and the trajectory of Scripture 
Uh, and so I make an argument in that regard. So obviously, like, you know, uh, but honestly, that aside, even your portrayal of just pointing out, like, there could be a deeper principle to it already would rub, I think, a lot of hellfire evangelicals. I mean, for goodness sakes, like Rob Bell, like, the, the dude got persecuted for asking questions. Yeah. Like, I feel like had he said anything close to what I said in my chapter, like, I don't know, would they have actually taken out, like, a state <laughs> and lit it on fire? I don't know if you could do your book without without Love Wins. You and other people, like, I, I feel like that book was a real trailblazer. And it literally, the entire book is just question marks. <laughs> just like, let's just follow these conclusions and ask questions. There were no real statements on what hell is or isn't, or if you he is, he's not a universalist in that book. I was so disappointed. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I loved Velvet Elvis. I loved Jesus Wants to Save Christian. I had high expectation. And then I read Love Wins. I was like, this was the book that got him all the controversy. <laughs> yeah. It, it seems so simple now. Like, it, it, or not simple. It seems silly that he got kicked out because of asking questions, basically. And I think he he was on his way out and want, probably wanted to do other things anyway, but regardless. Well, uh, it feels... Just asking questions, or he's doing a little bit more than asking questions, but anyway. Yeah. Provocative questions. They are, for sure. Well, but, he's, but isn't he also... He's making statements <laughs> question. I'm just saying, he's not like, hey, you can't ask any questions, Rob. Asking your teenage daughter, are you going out in that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. One of the only statements that he makes in that book uh, uh, on hell, like one of the few that he, he comes out straightforward, is yeah, people will get hell if they want it. Like that will, like they're not going to, if they want hell, they want to create the conditions for it, they're going to suffer in hell. Like, it's like he doesn't even, like, he doesn't even go full universal. And like, you can interpret that many ways, but like, the point is, He's still on the trajectory, very like in line with even like you'll get the hell you want, like it will come. Like the hell is still a thing. Interpret him as a heretic. Like there was yeah. the wiggle room to take that book if evangelicals wanted to and utilize it. They just decided to just like throw the thing into space and reject it. Well, it feels yeah. like a good hint in a follow-up podcast where we should just like constrain the topic simply to hell. And we should just dig into that one single topic because I think we could fill a podcast with just that. <laughs> uh, we could fill a serial podcast. You could just tease homophobia. Oh, at the very end, yeah. We could. Yeah. I, I Let's mean, crack that egg open and just like let a little yolk come out. And then the next one we do homophobia good. and then we, we do gender roles I after that. I know what the title of the podcast is already. Yeah, not make it great. The podcast is called <laughs> yeah, that episode is called What the Hell. Of course. <laughs> Actually, you know what? Heretic Happy Hour might have already taken that. Ralph might have gotten the drop on us. Damn it, Ralph? I don't remember if he did. You know what? I'm gonna claim that I influenced him. It doesn't matter. We'll do it better. We're the other alliterative podcast, and we'll do it better. Yeah, and I don't believe in time as a, a linear thing, so whatever. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Matthew, thank you so much for spending this time with us. It's late. You're in, on a, you're in a different day than we are right now. That's <laughs> how crazy this is. Uh, I really appreciate you, and... Uh, Give us where where can people find you? MatthewJCorpman.com, Corpman with a K. And a P. And a P. We'll hear Corp. P where they shouldn't. Oh, yeah. P as in Pedro. 
Uh, he is in Pedro. I always say P is in Paul. Well, <laughs> well, that's very biblical of you. He doesn't read the Bible. Yeah, we'll we'll agree. We'll uh, fight about that later. But that's a good point. So, how do people find you? Where do they where do they get more information? Where do they get your book? Yeah, sure. So, um, they can find the book anywhere books are sold. Uh, obviously, a lot of people get it on Amazon. Uh, there's a website for the book if people would like like a landing page. That's um, sayingnotogod.com. Um, but then my personal website, you can find lots of stuff on there, interviews and um, all kinds of information, academic articles and work that I do that's not popular, matthewjcortman.com. And um, I have a Facebook page and I have a Twitter profile and I'm happy to connect with people who want to reach out and ask questions or anything else. And I, I really hope that if anything else, um, you know, this book does less to answer questions and does more to like help prompt people to start asking better questions. Uh, in many ways, the issue with Christianity is that too many times we get locked into a paradigm and the paradigm isn't working. And uh, the paradigm isn't necessarily the most scriptural or the most biblically faithful. And uh, since we have the Bible and it has many riches that are untouched, uh, it's a good, it's a good uh, exercise to take the time to look at it. Um, also I should, I should add too, that I occasionally do, um, uh, courses online, go ahead as at least during these COVID eras, uh, try to share some knowledge. I'm about to start a course this month on, uh, Gnosticism and the Gnostic gospels and exploring how Gnostic Christians in the second century understood, uh, as well as a class on the historical Jesus. So, you know, um, I'm doing all kinds of different projects. And we find that at MatthewJCortman.com? The courses? My Facebook. For, probably Facebook. Facebook page. Um, you know, I haven't, I haven't made a huge thing of it. I try, to, I try to have the classes with only students who are, like, super interested. But, you know, if people were interested in something like that, you can just reach out to me. Send me a message on the, the profile on Twitter or on Facebook, and I'll, I'll send information out. Perfect. We'll make sure. Huge campaign. We'll make sure we put your details in the show notes so that anyone who's interested can grab that stuff off and, and quickly link and go to it. For sure. Matthew, thank you so much for coming on, man. Thank you so much for having me on and for having such an awesome conversation and for keeping me on my toes. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, like I'm like every podcast I'm on, it's like it's it's so it's so pandering. Uh, <laughs> like I on this show, I'm like, this is serious business. We definitely, definitely no pandering here. No, at least from my, not from Scott. Thank you, Scott, no. yeah. Scott, thank you, all of you, you guys have kept me on my toe and I've loved it. I hope the audience has loved it. And, um, honestly, I can say this has been a blast. Awesome. Awesome. Thank Th you so much. Yeah. Thanks, Matthew. Oh man. So, uh, briefly, do you guys want to do a little, um, what are you consuming? We'll get out of here. Oh yeah, let's do this. Anybody have anything? I do. The last like two, three weeks, I have been more lazy than usual. It's been terrible. So why? what have you been consuming while you're lazy? And why were you lazy? Uh, Amazon Prime. <laughs> YouTube. Well. Really, I have just really lose, been a loser. But that's not... Well, what what have you been consuming in both Amazon Prime and YouTube? I don't even remember. <laughs> <laughs> well, you might be a loser then. All right, cool. <laughs> He's been listening to Beck singles. 
let's see. I think the things that I've been consuming lately um, have been... We finished that series alone on Netflix, which is the uh, the survivalists that they drop off in the Arctic, and they're allowed to take like 10 survival items, and whoever lasts the longest gets half a million dollars. And so we finally made it through that, and it's fascinating. It's fascinating to see people people drop off way early because they can't get food, and people drop off at weird spots because they, they get lonely because they miss their families and they miss civilization and and they're out of there and i won't no spoilers but um i was glad to see that the person who won it won it so that's been one thing that i've been consuming yeah we we watched the same thing and um i agree with everything you just said in addition to that 12 monkeys an old movie old-ish uh 12 monkeys bruce willis a young Brad Pitt playing a paranoid schizophrenic, and he is fantastic. Uh, you get to see Bruce Willis's butt twice, maybe three times, and I'm pretty sure it's not a butt double. I don't know why that matters to me, but it's in my mind, so I'll say it. <laughs> and, uh, but t- time travel, viruses, which is, you know, timely. Uh, time travel, viruses, and... Uh, a little misdirection in the plot. Uh, every time I watch that movie, I get a little something new out of it. And I watched it, and it's great. Great movie. I recommend it. Go ahead. Yeah. You have an authoritarian leadership, and then you have the rebels. They're, they're fighting against it. Mm. There's that element, yes. Uh, and Brad Pitt playing the, the schizophrenic is incredible. And uh, I don't know. I, I highly recommend it. Uh, in addition to that, uh, multiple times, full playthroughs of the album "Good Thing" by Leon Bridges, which, if you like soul music that is new, you will love that album. And maybe in post, I'll throw something underneath Neo Soul. Whatever we're doing right now, uh, Leon Bridges "Good Thing" album. It is fantastic. Why? Why is it fantastic? Uh, just it's got all the soul feels uh, with great. Great production. It captures, it captures the the era, with really good production from today. Does does it feel like it's Motown era? Um, some of his other albums uh, are more Motowny, if that's a thing, and it is now because I just spoke it into existence. It's if an I can, adjective. I Motown-y. manifest it, uh, but uh, it's it's Motown with just a more broad acceptable appeal that if you think of Motown, you're like, Oh, that's kind of old or that's a, that's a genre I don't think about. Now you'll find something in this that you can dig into and grab onto. That's good. It's got a broad appeal for being a Neo soul Motown ish. Well, now you've shamed me into realizing that I need to mention that I did purchase the, a remix vinyl of Abbey road. Which I've been listening to on my nice. record player, and it sounds really, really good. Beautiful. Turns out, well, I'm not going to dive into the reasons why the Beatles uh, mixes are so weird, but let's just say this: they were around for all the mono mixes, and then they left and let some weird engineer do the stereo mixes because no one owned stereo devices back then, so they didn't even care. 
And lo and behold, all the weird stereo mixes are the things that we're left with. Yeah. So this attempts to fix that, and it sounds really good. That's some hot audio talk from the boys at Bros Bibles and Beer, which you can find us at brosbiblesbeer.com, bbbpod.com. Hey, you, the listener, can leave us voicemails at anchor.fm slash bbbpod. Leave us a voicemail. Maybe you're upset with something that was said. Maybe you're uh, in agreement with something that was said. But to quote Scott, if you don't say anything, that means you agree with everything that Scott said. Right. That's right. That is correct. And we know (laughs) 66% of people don't agree with Scott, according to my analytics that I just made up. 60% of the time, every time. (laughs) Uh, And then, so Gmail, uh, brosbiblespear at gmail.com. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, at Bros Bibles Beer. I did receive a DM from Matthew Corpman. He said, love the show. Thanks, Zach, for helping me make this happen. Smiley face. Oh, thanks, Matt. Go to bed. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Scott. And uh, thank you, Jeff. Jeff needed a breather after last week's emotional episode talking about his uh, wonderful mom who passed away. If you haven't heard that, listen to that, and you'll understand why Jeff needed a uh, a little space. Miss you, Jeff. We'll see you next week, buddy. Yeah. Scott? Um, we're, we're saying goodbye. <laughs> no. Well, okay. Just... <laughs> All right. You insist, then I persist. <laughs> that sounds right, actually. <laughs> All right. Hey, and I know, yeah, rate and review. We need rate and, ratings and reviews. That helps us. And and uh, let us know how much you disagree with Scott. I like that you're... Recording? Uh, yeah, I like that you think that I wouldn't have edited it before this. I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> you never know. Oh,